0: is Crimes of the Centuries. There had been a time when Porter Rogers lived what his neighbors considered an enviable, picture-perfect life. Porter had grown up a poor child with enough smarts and drive to become a doctor, and he was a generous one at that. When patients couldn't foot their bills, Porter figured out a way to help them anyway, sometimes waiving their fees altogether. His kindness paid off in the long run, earning him patients whose loyalty ultimately made him a millionaire. With that money, Porter bought a hospital and named it after himself. With his whip-smart wife, Fern, he also had two children, son Porter Jr. and daughter Anne, and the Rogers family was as close to royalty as you could get in their small town of Searcy, Arkansas. For a while, anyway. The apex was probably the 1930s and 40s. The Porter and Fern were still rich as sin and wildly influential in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Their sheen had definitely faded, It was common knowledge that Porter wasn't the most faithful husband. He drank too much and gambled and would spend stints away from home, sometimes living in a hotel right in town. Rumor had it that Porter kept getting himself into financial trouble, and Fern was so fed up with him that she refused to agree to help him settle his debts by selling any of the property they co-owned. Despite the turmoil, though, no one anticipated anything would get ugly.
1: Dr. Rogers. Is a very, he, he was not only well known, he was well liked.
0: This is Alan Robinette, community librarian with the Saline County Library in Bryant, Arkansas, who hosted a discussion on the case via Facebook Live in September 2021. Within minutes of starting the chat, Robinette said,
1: Somebody from our chat has already said they were delivered by Dr. Rogers. You know, this is how prominent this family was
0: which made it all the more shocking when word spread that police were crawling all over the couple's posh two-story colonial house after a housekeeper discovered Mrs. Rogers unresponsive on the floor. The case that unfolded was one of the most sensational in Arkansas history. It featured sex, drugs, and eventually appearances by some of the state's most prominent politicians, including then Attorney General and future President, Bill Clinton. Betty Jean Ross hadn't worked for the Rogers family very long when she arrived early September 26, 1974. Normally, she wouldn't have come alone simply because she didn't yet have her own key. She had worked in the Rogers home for a few weeks and usually arrived with a married couple who also helped tend the property, Mr. and Mrs. Alton French. But this morning, the Frenches weren't planning to arrive until mid-morning, and Betty wanted to get in and out faster than that. Instead of waiting for the couple to pick her up, as she had done most mornings, Betty drove by their place to borrow their key. Betty's job was to basically ready the house for Mrs. Rogers' morning. For example, she would fetch the newspapers that were delivered and put them on the table for Mrs. Rogers to read. Betty entered the house the way she always did, through the back door. She'd noticed straight away that the house was quiet, but that wasn't alarming. In her brief time working there, Betty had only seen Dr. Rogers a few times. It was no secret that the couple was on the outs, and while the two always seemed cordial enough to each other, the doctor was living in the nearby Noble Motel. The Rogers' children were adults with families of their own by now, so Mrs. Rogers was often alone in the expansive house. Nothing struck Betty as amiss until she walked through the house toward the front door. Just inside, she saw Mrs. Rogers sprawled on the floor. The stairs were close enough that Betty's first thought was that Mrs. Rogers must have fallen. She was 67 years old, after all, and while she seemed spy enough, a slip and fall certainly seemed possible. Betty rushed to the phone and called an ambulance. When she circled back to Mrs. Rogers, she finally noticed the blood that had pooled behind the woman's head. Police who arrived were quick to recognize this was no simple fall. While there were stairs nearby leading to the home's second story, Mrs. Rogers was too far away from them to make a fall down the stairs jibe with where she had landed. The cops' intuition was validated when, upon closer examination, they found two bullet holes in Mrs. Rogers' head.
1: There was a, a murderer on the loose.
0: Author Mike S. Allen, who grew up in Searcy, he and Deanna Hambinal wrote a book about the case called A Murder in Searcy in 2021.
1: I was uh, eight years old when this crime took place. So, you know, my memory of it's a little bit fuzzy uh, from back then, but it was something that we talked about at our dinner table.
0: It's safe to say that everyone seemed to be talking about the case in Searcy and beyond. The Associated Press story about the death began, quote, Fern Cowan Rogers, wife of a prominent Searcy physician, was found murdered in her two-story white brick home Thursday morning, authorities said. The whole town stunned, close friends said, end quote. The story quoted Arkansas State Police Captain Paul McDonald, who said police weren't clear on a possible motive yet. Fern's purse had been found in a flower garden behind the house, its contents strewn across the ground, which could have pointed to robbery, except that some high-priced diamond jewelry was left behind inside the purse. The night before the body was found was a Wednesday, which was noteworthy because Fern was known to stay out late playing bridge with a group of women on Wednesday nights. The previous night's game had ended up being more eventful than usual, because one of the other players did fall down some stairs and broke both of her wrists. Fern not only took the woman to the hospital, but she called her son, Porter Jr., who had followed in his father's medical practicing footsteps, to treat the woman. After that, Fern went home. Because there was no sign of forced entry at the house, police believed that the killer had been waiting for Fern to come home, though it wasn't clear if the culprit had waited inside the house or outside. If the latter, he or she could have followed the woman through the door. If the former, well, that meant he or she might have had a key. Police moved quickly to find answers. They tracked down Mrs. Rogers' kids and also her husband who was at a local diner eating breakfast as was his routine most mornings. A staffer stopped by his table and told Porter Sr. he had a phone call, after which Porter hastily left the restaurant saying to the employee he was dining with that he had to go. Something serious has happened at home, he said. When Porter Sr. reached the house and was told what had happened, he told the police to put their best detectives on the case straight away. Porter Jr. said he was shocked and heartbroken. Here's Jr. speaking later to reporters.
1: This is a great tragedy from the very start. All of the circumstances are tragic.
0: That was clear from the beginning. What wasn't clear, however, was what police most wanted to know. Who killed Fern Rogers? Porter Rogers Sr. was, of course, an immediate suspect in the death of his wife, Fern. You've got a man with a reputation of financial struggles, living apart from his wife, and that wife turns up dead? Of course police looked at him first. And things did not look good. On one hand, Porter Sr. was a beloved local figure, known not just for his money, but for how he used it. He was a philanthropist who, still, at age 70, made a point to give needy clients breaks on their bills. Author Deanna Hamby-Nall.
2: You didn't live in Searcy and not know who they were. Um, If you were born in Searcy, you were delivered by either Dr. Rogers or Dr. Edwards.
0: Edwards was another high-profile doctor in town.
2: And and you still hear people talk about that. Oh, which one delivered you?
0: This was a small-town atmosphere. I mean, Searcy itself isn't teeny-tiny. It's the largest city in the county seat of White County, Arkansas. But White County is already on the small side, so that's relative. In 1974, Searcy tallied about 10,000 residents. A lot of people who lived nearby were farmers. The Rogers were so well-liked that when they bought a chunk of land and built a house on Race Street, it felt like a town-wide event. I
2: mean, it was the Rogers' house, but I, I get the sense that the entire town felt a sense of ownership with that house because they were so proud of it. Um, because it was this big stately house on Ray Street and it was something they were proud of.
0: But when you say on one hand, that's because there's another hand to ponder. And the other hand in Porter Sr.'s case was far less flattering. Alan Robinette again.
1: Dr. Rogers was having an affair, a very public affair, a not very hidden affair. Right. No, but nobody's secret here.
0: That affair was with the employee with whom he was eating breakfast the morning he got the phone call about his wife's murder. Her name was Peggy Jean Hale. She was not merely a younger woman who had caught Dr. Roger's eye. She was nearly 50 years younger. I mean, this would be like casting a film today with Sadie Sink, the redhead kid from Stranger Things, as the love interest to Matthew Modine, the gray-haired guy who plays Papa. In truth, this is even a little generous, because Modine should be a couple of years older for this analogy, but I'm watching season four right now, so this is what's on my mind. Peggy and Porter made no secret of their affair. It had started a few years earlier in 1972, when Peggy was about 19 to the doctor's 67. She had been waitressing at Bill's Grill, a greasy spoon that was on the comeback after having been gutted by a fire. Peggy was one of three children who grew up in a strict household with her preacher father, a man named Milton Hale. Her parents' attempts to keep Peggy from drinking and sex seemed to have backfired. By the time she graduated high school, she was quite fond of both. She also had a track record of falling for older men. It's worth noting that I think what I'm about to relay would be viewed differently today, but at the time it was used as ammunition against Peggy's character. While she was still a teenager in high school, Peggy fell from one of her teachers, who was married. Today, we would talk about power dynamics and age gaps, but when word of this relationship spread around Searcy in 1974, the talk was more along the lines of, check out this girl with loose morals who tries to trap weak older men with her feminine wiles. To be fair, though, Peggy was outwardly very confident. Enough so that when her father, the preacher, raised objections to her relationship with Porter Sr., she told him, don't make me choose between you and Porter. And that was enough for a dad to back off because, as he later told investigators, he didn't want to lose his daughter. All of this helped fuel public interest in the case. Mike Allen again.
1: The fact that there was an affair with a much younger woman, which which caught the attention of people and it was an affair that was was pretty out in the open and so you know when it happened it was very much a local story it was very much a state story so the little rock um, little rock tv news radio all picked it up it was something that was was hitting the front page of the arkansas democrat the arkansas gazette
0: That was before a kinda-true, kinda-fictionalized version of the story appeared in a national detective magazine that raised the case's profile even more. That story ran before the trial began, which helped get it on the radar of national publications like the New York Times.
1: It starts as this story that's that's very much a state story, a central Arkansas story, but it, it gains momentum and it snowballs and it becomes a bigger story with time.
0: Now, Peggy and Porter Sr. denied having anything to do with Fern's murder when police interviewed them. Here was their tale. Peggy had, for a while, lived in a mobile home, but she had started to feel unsafe. Her dad bought her a 25 caliber handgun to help on that front, and Milton Hale even showed his daughter how to use the weapon, who was, by all accounts, not very good at handling it. She managed to discharge it by accident in her mobile home once, lodging a bullet beneath the floor. A few months before Fern's murder, Peggy moved back in with her parents. She just felt safer there, she said. Around the same time, she loaned her handgun to an old boyfriend. It so happened that the boyfriend died a couple of months later, and Peggy said she never saw the weapon again, which was convenient because wouldn't you know it, Fern was killed with a small caliber handgun. The bullets pulled from her brain indicated it was, in fact, a 25 caliber. When Peggy was asked about this coincidence, she said she understood why that looked odd, but she insisted she didn't have the weapon and hadn't had it for months. Porter Sr., meanwhile, said he knew that Peggy had briefly owned a handgun and that he wasn't a fan. That's because he was actually asleep inside of her trailer that night she'd accidentally fired it. It scared the hell out of him, he said. He didn't like her having it was happy when she loaned it out and happier still when the loan seemed to turn permanent. But police investigating Fern's death weren't satisfied with this. They thought the overlapping gun types was a bit too convenient to dismiss without a more thorough investigation, so they asked for permission to search Peggy's old trailer and also her parents' yard where her dad had supposedly taught her how to use the gun. In both searches, they hit pay dirt, Investigators found a discharged bullet beneath the mobile home's flooring and also several bullets and spent casings in the backyard of her parents' home. A forensic analysis found that the bullets from Fern's head had marks and grooves consistent with the one in Peggy's floor and the spent shell casings matched as well. Confronted with this, Peggy began to talk. Neither she nor Porter had killed Fern, she said, but they had asked someone to do it for them. Her story went like this. Porter wanted to marry Peggy, but Fern refused to grant him a divorce. Porter consulted with attorneys who told him that forcing the matter would be very costly and he'd lose at least half of everything to his estranged wife. One day, Peggy and Porter were hanging out with a 32-year-old guy named William Barry Kimbrell, who had been one of Peggy's boyfriends when she was in high school. One of the trio said, gee, it really would be a lot easier if Fern just died. An awkward silence followed, after which Barry said, hey, I know a guy who could probably do that for you. There are two versions of what happened next, depending on whom you believe. Version one is that Porter Sr. said, oh yeah, how much would something like that cost? Barry said about $6,000, half up front, half after the deed. And with help from Peggy, the three hatched a plan that took months to execute. Version number two is similar, except in that telling, Porter Sr. was pretty meh about the suggestion and also had become incredibly forgetful, which his lawyers would later argue was because he was suffering from organic brain disease. In this version of events, Peggy and Barry are the ones who moved forward with the plan, while Porter only re entered the picture to confess in an effort to save Peggy's hide. According to either version, the end result was the same.
1: Barry Kimbrell is the, uh, the gentleman who allegedly was the trigger man.
0: By the time Rogers went on trial, the case was one of the biggest in Little Rock history. The trial against Porter Rogers Sr. began in February 1975, about five months after his wife Fern had been found fatally shot in their posh Searcy, Arkansas home. This is TV reporter Steve Barnes reporting outside of the courthouse for KATV Channel 7.
1: If all of this had been fiction from the pen of the South's greatest novelist, it would have been Bad Faulkner. To fit the literary mold, this trial should have been held in the heat of summer, Attorneys dressed in white coats, overhead fans trying vainly to cool the courtroom. What we have is February and March. Cold, rain, wet streets, and an overwhelming sense of sadness.
0: It all felt like such a waste. Here you had a self-made man born just after the turn of the century whose trajectory truly seemed like some kind of rags-to-riches story. He only got to go to medical school because a rich uncle was unusually generous. That's not to say his past had been spot-free, to be clear. In fact, soon after he and Fern married, while she was pregnant with her oldest child, Porter had been arrested. The year was 1933, and he'd been caught in a counterfeit ring that led to charges against two dozen Arkansas men, including a guy named E.R. Hooper, who had served as a clerk and a judge in Independence County. The ring was accused of flooding Arkansas and nearby states with fake $10 and $20 bills. Rogers, who'd been found in possession of about $2,700 of the fake bills, pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three years in prison, but he was so beloved that more than 50,000 people signed a petition asking that his medical license be reinstated after the state revoked it. Long story short, he not only weathered the crisis, but it seemed to endear him to the people of Searcy. Not so much with his wife, though. She had been among his most vocal supporters at first. It was she, in fact, who gathered all of those petition signatures. But soon after she helped dig Porter out of that hole, he dug himself into another. And another. He bought property without discussing it with Fern first, sometimes making pretty dumb deals. Then he began buying horses and cattle, sometimes under an alias. The gambling debt soon followed. Whatever Fern's reasoning, she didn't want to divorce him, but she also didn't seem too keen on living with him anymore either, especially not after she caught him in one affair after another. Things with Porter got so bad, in fact, that Porter Jr. at one point stepped in. You might remember that he had followed in his dad's footsteps as a doctor, which meant their social and business circles overlapped. Someone got loose-lipped about his dad's financial messes, and Porter Jr. confronted his dad. Hey, man, you've got to lock this down. Porter Sr. promised he would. But most of that wasn't common knowledge. Most outsiders only knew the basics, that Porter was a self-made man who cut people slack on their bills, delivered half the babies in town, and had enough swagger that he always seemed to have a young lady on his arm. Plus, he was 70 years old by the time the trial started. He'd survived a couple of heart attacks. And much like the teacher that Peggy would be accused of seducing, he got a pass from a portion of the population who believed that men were helpless to resist attractive young women. When you see footage of news media following him to and from court, he looks like a doddering old man, not some homicidal Casanova.
1: Any comment at all, Dr. Rogers?
0: On the whole, though, public sentiment wasn't with him nearly as much as it was with his slain wife.
2: Fern Rogers was a person who cared about people. A lot of people cared about her. She was a pillar in the Cersei community. She gave a lot to that community for decades, and um, it was just a truly tragic event that she lost her life in this way.
0: Peggy, in cutting a plea deal, served as the state star witness. Her testimony was rife with contradictions when it came to motive. She managed to say she knew all the details of Porter's finances and imagined herself married to him, while also never considering how rich she would be if Fern were dead. But the basic facts stayed consistent. She said the plan got moving after Barry Kimbrell offered to connect Porter with a hitman friend. The first $3,000 installment to pay for the hit came from Peggy's account, she said because Porter rarely had access to cash. Instead, he laundered money through Peggy by padding her pay as his receptionist slash assistant slash whatever. Fern kept the purse strings pretty tight on money at home. Kimbrell supposedly passed that three grand along to a buddy called Frank, who came into town and followed Fern around for a few days. Porter and Peggy never met this Frank fellow, who some people later suspected never actually existed anyway. Regardless, the story Kimbrell told was that while Frank was casing Fern, he was stopped three separate times by police officers who seemed to be watching Fern like a hawk. The cops supposedly scared Frank off, which Barry relayed to Peggy and Porter. He said that Frank said that even if he were to be paid $100,000, he wouldn't do the job because there seemed to be no way to get away with it. But Barry was more optimistic. He offered to do the deed himself. Porter gave Barry a key to the house and, about three weeks before Fern was killed, even walked him around the property. A family friend actually saw Porter with a strange man near the house around this time and told Fern about it prompting Fern to call Porter and ask, hey, who the hell did you have near my house? Porter supposedly replied that it was just someone in the cattle business and the matter was dropped. The plan was that Barry would park his car somewhere close-ish to the Race Street house, then have Peggy drive him from his car to the house. That way, he wouldn't be seen walking toward the house, which might stick in someone's memory. He'd park close enough that he could drive away quickly, but not so close that anyone would put two and two together after he left the scene of the as-yet-undiscovered crime. Two weeks before the murder, they made their first attempt. After Peggy dropped Barry off at the house, she spent some time with Porter at the Noble Motel, and then she went to her parents' house. Barry later said that Fern... Never came home that night, though, so he couldn't do the job. The next week was equally unsuccessful, though for the opposite reason. This time, Fern had come back from her bridge game way earlier than usual, so she was already home when Barry arrived. He aborted the plan. The third time proved to be the charm. Barry later told Peggy that he had used the house key he'd been given and hid inside until Fern arrived. She got there after 12.30 a.m. She would have been home earlier, but if you remember, another bridge player had fallen down some stairs and broken both her wrists, and Fern had helped get that woman to the hospital. Barry shot Fern twice in the head. It was over quickly. He grabbed a purse, but got spooked when he saw what he thought were headlights in the driveway. Thinking that someone was coming, Barry bolted, dumping the purse and most of its contents on the ground outside. Strangely, Peggy and Porter could have made a point to be somewhere out together in public at this stage, but they didn't do that. They were basically each other's alibis. Porter drove Peggy to her parents' house around 11.30 or so, but Peggy's parents were asleep and couldn't even vouch for that. If this case had come down to alibis, they would have been screwed, but it didn't anyway. Some reporting from during the trial.
1: In chambers this morning, before court began, the defense informed the prosecution and the bench that it would not recall Peggy Jean Hale, at least not at this time. The first state witness of the day was Miss Hale's father.
0: The news coverage was hefty, though the judge overseeing it didn't allow cameras in the courtroom. This is Judge John Anderson explaining the decision.
1: Because I was fearful that some press coverage might bias or prejudice the jurors in this case, and I felt it out through an abundance of caution I should not. We did everything possible that we knew how to ensure that Dr. Rogers secured a fair and impartial trial.
0: Still, the trial was a spectacle. Lines of people sought seats inside the courtroom while folks at home caught nightly updates through their local news. And looking for coverage of this case, I found more news footage than usual, though a lot of it is B-roll of lawyers flipping through law books and Porter walking on the sidewalks flanked by his lawyers. Then you have weird talking head type interviews with the spectacled guys saying things like,
2: You can't have a subject going on like this over the period of time that the trial has gone on and a subject which is in daily discussion and pretty near every household. And it's bound to have an effect. Uh, Never before have I seen people in Cersei flock into the courthouse to get a seat to watch.
0: While prosecutors painted Porter Sr. as a murderous man, quote unquote, hungry for Peggy Hale, his defense team, led by future state congressman Ed Bethune, argued that Peggy was the predator. Just as she had seduced her teacher once upon a time, she had seduced this old doctor, a doctor who, according to defense witnesses, was losing his faculties. Housekeepers from the motel he called home hesitantly described his feces-covered bathrooms and said he'd lost all ability to care for himself. Others said he routinely fell asleep at work, that his mental acuity had declined so much that his prescriptions had to be back-checked because he would sometimes diagnose a string of patients with entirely different symptoms as having the same condition, for which he prescribed the same medication. He also had been ordered by the state not to prescribe opiates anymore after one of his patients was found selling the drugs on the streets. The jury wasn't as sympathetic as Porter's lawyers were, however. They found him guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to life in prison. For the record, Porter's own son said this about the conviction.
1: I think that justice has been served. I think uh, my father was tried by his peers in his home county. A best effort was given by the judiciary system, by the prosecution, by the defense, and also by the jury. And I feel that justice at this point has been served.
0: Bethune felt otherwise. Here's footage of him walking away from the courthouse while talking to a reporter.
1: You plan an appeal? That's something we'll be talking about, yes. Likely? Likely.
0: In a surprising move, Porter was released from prison while his appeal wound through the system. When he left the court after that decision, he saluted the cameras in a stiff-handed wave that looked like a beauty pageant atop a
1: float. Doctor, do you have a comment for us? No comment, just glad to be out of custody. What you do you
0: do? Bethune tried to interject.
1: I'll answer uh, any further questions for you today. Uh Dr. Rogers is pleased to be out of custody, state and federal, and intends to enjoy uh, himself while his case is appealed to the Arkansas Supreme Court.
0: And he did, but not for long. While awaiting his appeal, he was convicted in an entirely separate case in which Peggy Hale testified that he had helped patients file bogus insurance claims for a cut of the payouts. For that, he was sentenced to 40 months in prison and fined $10,000. He lost that appeal he was fighting for, by the way. Then Arkansas State Attorney General Bill Clinton, who'd become US president 14 years later, signed the response denying the appeal in December 1978. Porter Rogers Sr. survived two years in prison before dying in late 1980. Barry Kimbrell, against whom Peggy Hale also testified, was convicted and sentenced to life in prison as well. He didn't like that plan, so he managed one day to escape.
2: He escaped with another inmate, and they managed to sneak out in in a vehicle. But the the prison officials they were convinced that they were still on the ground somewhere, so they spent several days combing the prison grounds, and Barry and the other guy were driving far away.
0: The cohort was found in California fairly quickly, but somehow Kimbrell was on the lam for three full months. The vehicle he had fled in was mysteriously stocked with money to the tune of $10,000, which made some in Searcy wonder if he had a deep-pocketed accomplice somewhere. Regardless, His freedom was short-lived. He apparently had fled Arkansas, only to circle back and get re-arrested in Little Rock. He died behind bars in 1992 at age 49. I couldn't find a cause of death beyond prison officials saying it was, quote-unquote, natural. In exchange for her testimony against the two men, Peggy Hale was offered a deal. She pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, was sentenced to 21 years in prison, but served a fraction of that. She was released on parole in August 1980 at age 27. Porter Rogers Jr. continued working in town as a doctor, but from what I can tell, that's the only fashion in which he followed his father's footsteps. It seems his legacy in Searcy is rooted in philanthropy rather than murder. To research this story, I read A Murder in Searcy by Deanna Hambinall and Mike S. Allen, read a ton of contemporary news coverage, and also perused a few hours of TV news footage available through the University of Arkansas's David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessNetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.